Well, welcome to our 11th episode of Ideas and Lives. Uh, today, we're delighted to have Dallas Salisbury, uh, a longtime uh, expert on pensions and retirement security for Americans, um, and a good friend of my co-director, Tzvi Bodhi. So, Long-time friends. So, uh, introduce... Dallas, and we can get started. Okay. Well, Dallas has uh, quite a history as an entrepreneur in the public sector. In fact, one of our questions is what made him to decide to pursue a career in the public sector. We'll get to that in a second. But he founded uh, something called the Employee Benefit Research Institute which uh, is still a, the go-to place in Washington, D.C. for anything you want to know about employee benefits. And uh, it was a research, not a lobbying organization. It, it is a uh, research organization. He'll tell us about that. But uh, not too long ago, he followed uh, the path many of us have taken into the later stages of one's career. Oops. We we don't like the the R word retirement. We don't because we're not retired. And my guess is you're not retired either. You're still quite active participating in everything. So uh, that's how's that for an introduction? Sounds good. I am retired, but it's uh retired from full-time paid work. Nobody pays me to do anything anymore. There we go. That's that's my situation too. Bob Lerman is not yet. You're, you're, um, you have to turn your speaker on. There so to me, uh, how did you get to know Dallas? We met at a conference. You know, uh, I, I was working at the National Bureau of Economic Research in charge or co-directing a project on pensions. And I was a novice. Dallas at that point already knew a hell of a lot more than I did. So uh, I had the temerity to disagree with him about something. And he, and he shot me down and I said, I better make friends with this guy or I'm in big trouble. I still can't remember whether the first meeting we were at together was the, the annual meeting of NBER on Martha's Vineyard, or it was at Lake Winnipesaukee, because there were, there were- That's true, yeah. Well, the Lake Winnipesaukee was the Boston Fed. Right, correct. Um, it could have been either of those. But your presentation there was presentation of research you'd been doing um, tied to NBER. So, yes, that is that is true. Yes. <laughs> so uh, why don't we get yeah. going on you, Dallas, um, and maybe you tell us a little bit about uh, where you grew up and uh, sort of where I, I think about people where they grew up is where they went to high school. Um, but maybe you also went to grade school in the same place, um, and how you got into the field 
over time um, and you know what your upbringing was like? Well, my I grew up in a <clears throat> town in the West called Everett, Washington, <clears throat> and Everett really represented the point that my family moved um, moved west. Is my great grandfather had been in Racine, Wisconsin. His brother created a company called Oshbosh. My gosh, that um, you may have. Heard. Oh yes, yes. And he ran a dry goods store. And he sold that dry goods store in 1889 when he was asked by a group of New York investors if he would move to a new town. Um, at that moment, a cleared bit of land that had uh, no houses uh, called Everett, that they were creating as a new town called Everett, Washington. The main investor was somebody who was not well known. His name was Rockefeller. <laughs> <laughs> And so the family moved there in 1891. Uh, some of my life was determined by his daughter and my grandmother who graduated as the very first graduate of the newly created Everett High School in 1892. And then it became one of the very first early students, particularly female students at a school called the University of Washington in Seattle um, the year she graduated from high school and subsequently graduated with a teacher's degree in 1895 um, before moving back to Everett and, and having a teaching career prior to meeting my grandfather and getting married and having one child, my father. Um, so Everett was where uh, I went to kindergarten, to grade school, to middle school, to high school, um, and during summers to summer programs and debate at the University of Washington. Uh, also during those years of high school, I was involved in a program called the YMCA Youth Legislature. And first year was as a representative, the second year as elected, statewide elected attorney general and the third year as statewide elected Lieutenant Governor. And as part of the motivation for that and where my future life went, um, a woman across the street um, in a all democratic, <clears throat> heavily unionized mill town of Everett, Washington had the temerity to be the county Republican chairperson. And, um, <laughs> She recruited all the little neighborhood kids when I was um, <clears throat> six years old. And she recruited us to help stuff bags full of election material. And she would then drive around town <clears throat> in her convertible filled with bags full of election material. And so my first campaign of doorbelling, door to, be door to bell, door to door belling uh, was at the age of seven. And I worked in campaigns, pulling signs off silk screens in her basement and various other things for some years thereafter, um, having grown up in a family for, that is my father. For, Repo for the Republican Party. Yes, was, uh, was my father and his, and uh, my grandfather um, made clear that on both sides of my family, I was a genetic Republican. 
and part of that is because my grandmother's maiden name happened to be another not well-known name, Lincoln. And my great-grandfather to the 10th um, happens to be also the great-grandfather of Abraham Lincoln. Um, oh, my. And so there is a bit of um, in irrefutability to the genetics of republicanism on that side of my family. And my father wow. assures me that his father and his great-grandfather um, were so oriented as well. So um, for many years, I, I never even questioned, as I was not allowed to, uh, whether this was the place for me to be. And the state of Washington in that same period of time um, had the history of only being capable of electing um, liberal politicians. Um, and those were the politicians when I went to the state legislature as secretary of state, one of my first introductions was to the governor of the state, Dan Evans, who was one of those Rockefeller type Republicans. Um, and one of my earliest pictures with a politician is from that junior year in high school with the governor um, and with the officers of the youth legislature. Uh, the following year, when I was Lieutenant Governor, the other person that I got spent time with um, was the Re Republican Attorney General because he ended up being a primary contact for the youth legislature. Both of them subsequently became United States Senators during my tenure at the Employee Benefit Research Institute. They introduced me to various things. And so in, in high school, I was involved in that. I was involved in debate. I was involved in various other activities that brought me in contact with much that, that helped lead me into public service and one would say shaped me uh, in many, many ways. Uh, through the family history, I ended up at the University of Washington. That is where, as I said, my, my grandmother uh, was a, a prior century graduate. Uh, my mother and father both graduated from the University of Washington. Um, my siblings did not, but um, a, a few dozen cousins, nieces, and nephews um, have gone to the University of Washington. And if I went to college, there was sort of no, no alternative to going to the University of Washington both for those reasons, but for the reason that I was enthusiastic about it, it was a very good school. Um, but it also at that point in time was very affordable. Um, annual tuition and each of my years, I went all four quarters and a quarter at a full class load was $315 for an in-state resident. Uh, and it was only 25 minutes from home uh, and my paternal uh, great-grandfather who had come to the state um, in order to open a hotel in Tacoma, Washington, and then migrate north for the Alaska gold rush, had ended up moving to Whidbey Island and bought property there and built a home and a, and a shingle mill in, uh, in 1901. Um, he paid, I still have the bill of sale, he paid $1 for the, the piece of property. 
and that property is where uh, my father grew up. Uh, my father's my father's lived with uh, obviously his family, and my grandmother lived there. Had moved in there from Everett, um, and I spent every single summer there. Um, we moved over there the day school got out. We didn't move back until the day school got back in. Is that uh, near uh, Seattle? It is. It's a fifteen-minute drive plus ferry ride combined from Everett. And so from Seattle, including the ferry ride in today's traffic, it's at about, about an hour and a half. Uh, but during the, the heyday, right after the interstates had been opened, um, Seattle to the, to the front door of the beach house, including the ferry ride, I used to be able to do from the university uh, in about 44 minutes. So it was, yes, it's, it's by Eastern commuting standards and California commuting standards, uh, it's right next door. Uh, so how did you um, choose to go into uh, in your your major? And I, I believe it was in economics at Washington. It was actually, Washington. Well, I at the university, I ended up in student politics. I was elected to the board of control. I was elected to be second vice president and first vice president in three different years. In those capacities, I served as chairman of the budget and finance committee. And also because the student body president said it was would represent too much of an establishment interpretation if he uh, accepted an invitation by the University of Board of Regents uh, to be a, an undergraduate student attendee at board, board of Regents meetings, along with the president of the graduate student organization. And so he looked at me and said, you're a Republican, you probably don't mind being tagged as an establishment. So you attend the board of Regents meetings. And at those meetings, one of the other people there for the first time was the president of the faculty senate. The president of the faculty senate was married to a woman who was a senior member of the state house of representatives which at the point i met her the governor um, had just finished his uh, house period as house majority leader and the then attorney general having just been elected had just finished his tenure as the uh, assistant majority leader of the house. And so I got and met, I'd already met the uh, both of them at the point that I met the member of the state house of representatives. She fairly quickly offered me a part-time position, which was basically to pull together a staff of other students and following the get prepared prior to the release of the 1970 census data that included a trip, two trips to Washington DC for training sessions here. And that was the first year that anyone in the country was able to actually use computers in state reapportionment and congressional reapportionment. And my task with the crew that I worked with was to do overlay maps of every census block in the country, in the state, with every precinct in the state, 
and do a percentage allocation of every precinct into the and the residents of each precinct into the appropriate census block. That led to boxes and boxes of punch cards that represented the ability after all of the computer integration to allow for the first time the ability to change precinct lines and in the process know the exact 1970 demographics of the population of that district as well as based on integration of the prior four gubernatorial elections and the prior four US Senate and congressional elections to basically know exactly what the outcomes would have been in every proposed congressional House and Senate district over that election history, in addition to the demographics. So it allowed a process of being able to be pretty clear on what it was you were, you were negotiating and the implications of accepting or rejecting a proposal from the other side. The Democrats that year chose not to use computers um, because the longtime uh, majority leader of the Democratic Party in the state Senate um, believed that he knew within his memory um, the appropriate election demographics of every precinct in the state and that he would be capable of matching all of our analytic capabilities and computer capabilities just by his longtime experience. He had been majority leader in the state Senate, which had been dominated by the Democrats for over three decades. And so he had been through more than one reapportionment. And he, he was a brilliant guy on these issues. Um, but he couldn't be a computer. Yeah, I then I then finished the University of Washington. I happened to finish my degree requirements um, in finance and accounting at the business school um, in December of my my fourth year at the university, and that allowed me to accept a job offer from the uh, House Republican Caucus combined with the governor, the attorney general, and the uh, Republican minority in the Senate to move to the state capitol and to put together a staff in the state capitol to staff the Republican reapportionment effort after the 1970 census. And so I reported to work in uh, late December of 1970 uh, into Olympia and worked through the legislative session of 1971 um, with, with the data and with the process and with initial negotiations. And that meant spending and getting to know all of the various members of the House and the Senate, the leadership of both parties who were involved in the negotiations, as well as developing fairly strong personal relationships uh, with the governor and the attorney general. But, but let me ask you, let me that, stop you here for that, a second. But that led me stop. into that led me into public policy and into public service, which is right. But but how did you know you still haven't answered me the question about uh, economics and finance and accounting. Well we'll how you happen we'll, to choose those well we'll those actually majors, given we'll, all of your we'll actually get there. <laughs> 
political. <laughs> we'll actually get there. Okay. The, the chairman Sorry. of the fact. The chairman of the faculty senate, who was one of my mentors at the university from that point forward, uh, is a, was a former chairman of the economics department. Uh, mm. He gave up the chairmanship to uh, another gentleman uh, who since he decided to move to the University of Chicago after getting his Nobel Prize, chose to uh, shall, shall be nameless. Uh, since he chose to desert the University of Washington after it had <laughs> fame. Uh, but who, that, who could it have been? But that individual, uh, that individual uh, got me interested in economics. I'd taken a couple of courses during my first two years, and I took additional business economic courses while I was in the business school. Uh, but it did not actually end there because... Uh, to go back momentarily to the, the next stage of this, uh, the reapportionment process ended um, it, in sort of a strange way. You now see in reapportionment all the discussion of yeah. the desirability of state commissions and court involvement. Um, when the Republican governor and the Republican House failed to get a, a compromise with the Democratic Senate, and they were unable to pass a reapportionment bill. Um, that immediately moved it to the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court ordered the appointment of a special master. Uh, so the end of our, our work on reapportionment was the assignment that came from the master for us to develop a plan, the Democrats created plan A, the Republicans plan B. Uh, we actually submitted a version A, B and C within the second plan. And out of the primary plan we submitted, uh, the objective the staff was given was create the maximum number of swing districts that the data shows could have gone essentially in the next election could literally go either way. And we did that and the, and we did it with a rule of try to avoid breaking a minimum of state, of county and city boundaries. So it would be a look like a nice pretty map. Um, the Democrats regrettably did it out of their heads and it looked like a traditional, extraordinarily gerrymandered map. Um, and they didn't attempt to maintain any county or city borders. The result of that is that the master submitted to the Supreme Court a plan that um, was based on um, no congressional boundaries being changed from what we submitted and only one boundary between two state Senate districts being changed in the entirety of the House and the Senate. And that happened to come to the attention of another of my mentors, the, a political scientist who was the chairman of the Department of Business, Government and Society uh, at the business school. And it happened that his closest friend from his Mormon his Mormon missionary ship was the about to depart Dean of the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at, 
at Syracuse University who had a deep interest in reapportionment. And with the sudden end of my employment in the state of Washington, that mentor uh, called me and said, have you applied to your, and are you know, do you know where you're going to grad school? And I said, I didn't think I was gonna be done with this job. And he said, well, what do you wanna do? And I said, uh, public finance, public finance economics and public administration, public policy, something in those areas. He said, do you know where you wanna go? I said, I have no idea, I haven't thought about it. He said, well, have you heard of the Maxwell School? And a friend of mine, father had gone there. And I said, yeah, but you know, I know nobody there, that's a long ways away. He said, well, would you be willing to go if you got admitted? And I said, I have nothing else to do. I, I, I will simply answer yes. He said, okay, now that's a firm commitment, right? I said, yes. And he got on the phone immediately um, and without any delay, um, his friend who was the Dean of the Maxwell School. Uh, he described me to the Dean. Uh, I could, there was no speaker phone at that point, but I could hear a little bit of the conversation. The conversation ended. Um, and I was told three things. Uh, one, you have to have a FedEx package ready to go, uh, or similar, I forget who it was at that point that did, did that stuff. But you have to have a package on the way to Syracuse within 24 hours because he will only be dean for another 12 days. And he was moving to a deanship at another university. And he said, but if he has the paperwork and if the paperwork convinces him that you're as good as I've told you, told him you are, um, then you are admitted to the program. Um, and there happens to be, if you're willing to work as a student assistant hat 20 hours a week, um, then there is also full tuition funding with a, a live and board stipend available to you. Again, assuming that the paperwork supports what he has been thinking based on what I've told him. Um, and as a result, not too many weeks later, I was in an automobile on my way uh, with all my belongings to Syracuse, New York, um, where I had my focus within the public administration master's program uh, on public finance and public economics, where Jesse Burkhead and, and Roy Ball and a number of other um, fairly well-known uh, financial economists and economists were in the department that taught those courses. Uh, and so that was, that was sort of the overall process of transition. Uh, then I got to know the, the, about the same time I got there, both a new dean got there and a new director of the public administration program arrived. Uh, he's the one I ended up working for as an assistant. Um, and subsequently, he convinced me to continue in the PhD program, uh, which I did. Um, and he then convinced me that I should move to Washington, D.C. Um, to take a, a position at a temporary commission, um, which, if I followed through on his conversations, would produce my PhD dissertation. Uh, so post-comprehensives and post-coursework, 
And with the side notation that I happened to meet a young woman that I still live with uh, at that graduate school, and she was a dyed-in-the-wool New Englander um, who's, who reluctantly agreed that Washington, D.C. would be an acceptable Washington to move to, but most certainly the rain-drenched Washington state would not. And uh, so for the combination of uh, being with the woman I'd fallen in love with, plus uh, completing a PhD dissertation, uh, I moved to Washington, D.C. in uh, in what was then May of uh, 1974. And that is what started my, what became a, a long career first in government and then at the Employee Benefit Research Institute. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, one, uh, what was your dissertation about? And the other is <clears throat> with all your political success, even as a high school student, did you not feel tempted to go into electoral politics? Um, well, you know, I don't know about the two of you, but uh, you may or may not have ever had conversations like this. Uh, but I actually, based on the advice, not of my father, but of my mother, uh, had fairly lengthy conversations with my to-be wife um, about a whole lot of issues including what both of us were thinking about career, what both of us were thinking about children or not children, a long list. She actually had a longer list than I did. Um, and among the items on my list was, and you know, if it was workable for you, I'd like to go into electoral politics. And she immediately without hesitation said, that's a deal breaker. Wow. Wow. And that was that made the decision to your point extremely extremely simple um, one of the other things that that was a deal breaker for her that was agreeable to me was that neither one of us would ever make a career change unless both of us agreed that it was the desirable thing for the family unit to do uh, so sub subsequently to that <laughs> I moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, I went to work at a unit of the U.S. Department of Justice. This is another, this does get to your exact question. And I went to a thing called, excuse me, the Freedom of Information Act Study Group, which had been mandated by Congress and by legislation. Um, it's, it's Senate overseer was Senator Ted Kennedy. Uh, and in the midst of my 32-day tenure in that job, um, something took place that you may or may not have heard of called the Saturday Night Massacre oh, at yeah. the U.S. <laughs> Department of Justice. And the individual who I was working for, who interestingly was a, a, a joint JD MPA, PhD in public administration, um, was extraordinarily offended by the Saturday Night Massacre. And he chose to announce to the staff on day 31 that he was, he had finally gotten a meeting with the new deputy attorney general who he said was supposedly his new boss. Um, 
he'd had no difficulty with the prior deputy attorney general. Uh, he said, and I just want all of you to know, I'm gonna go meet with him and I'm gonna tell him if he ever tries to tell me what to do that interferes with the objectivity of this group work or literally anything about how I run this group or literally tells me to do anything, I'm gonna tell him I will resign. And he said, I should be back by 4.30 and we'll, we'll reconvene at 4.30. And he went away and he got back before 4.30, accompanied by two US marshals uh, <laughs> and carrying some empty boxes. And he met with us at 4.30 and said, today is my last day of employment. Um, today, the attorney general um, responded to my telling that by saying, okay, I'm gonna test you. I want you to dictate your letter of resignation, which I will hold. And I responded, well, no, I don't want to dictate a letter of resignation. And he said, are you disobeying my direct order to draft a letter of resignation? And this guy, in spite of his being a bright guy, well-educated, well-degreed, um, wasn't very pragmatic. And instead of saying, sure, I'll, 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 go, I'll, I'll dictate a letter for you to use in the future, he said, no, I refuse. The deputy attorney general, he said, picked up the phone and called in his assistant. He then dictated my letter of resignation, and he told me to sign it. I did, and he said, fine, you will note that the effective date was in fact today at the end of business. Um, some of my staff will escort you and you should tell those on your staff that the study group has, as of this moment, uh, been ended since the Congress has just passed amendments to the Freedom of Information Act and those amendments included an elimination of the requirement for this study group. And that bill is about to be signed by the president. And so the study group, there's no need for it. And so they will be on the payroll until we make other arrangements and you will be for all of them. And he told us all that. And uh, so that was the end of that career. It was the end of my PhD dissertation. Um, it was the beginning of, I need a job. <laughs> and uh, by chance, the next day, there was another senior social scientist. He did have his completed PhD. Um, he had come there after his Brookings Fellowship, had a PhD from Yale University. Um, and, but he had been as offended by the uh, Saturday Night Massacre and was equally offended by the departure of this individual um, that he immediately call, asked for a meeting at the Justice Department. Um, I was out in the ante room because the, the Associate Deputy Attorney General agreed to meet with both of us. Uh, while I was in the ante room, I heard lots of shouting and screaming, all my colleagues, none of it from a third party. Um, and after a while, he came out and he said, I have submitted my resignation effective immediately. I will not work for this administration another minute. Uh, 
I sat there waiting for something to happen. I sat there for about 45 minutes before his assistant's phone rang. And she said, I'll ask him. And she looked at me and said, he'll meet with you if you promise not to shout. <laughs> and I went in and we talked. Uh, he's somebody that I've gotten and I got to know well. Uh, my wife and I were godsons to his one, one son. Um, subsequently, we still are very much in touch, including with um, his now 40-year-old son. Uh, and we finished our conversation and he said, okay, here's what, I, here's what I'm gonna suggest. He said, I don't have time to deal with any of this. So you can begin work tomorrow as my assistant and your first assignment is to find employment within the Justice Department for any and all of the 30 people that are now left at the study group. Um, and when you're done placing all 30 of them, then come back and see me. And he said, you'll be working with, and he said, wait a minute, he picked up the phone. Uh, he called the head of administration said, bring up that stack of resumes and files. Uh, he came up, he handed me this stack of files that included me and all the others, um, said, will you show him to where he can sit? And I went out, left the files on that desk and the next morning reported to work at the Justice Department. Um, but with the specific instruction that I should not spend another minute thinking about a PhD dissertation as long as I worked at the Justice Department. Uh, since I then worked at the Justice Department for a couple of years, that put the PhD dissertation on the back burner. Um, I then ended up, because of another change of personnel, uh, having the opportunity to move to the Department of Labor and Ironically, the person who offered me that job, I'd only met that same day because he had just arrived as the new associate deputy attorney general just in time to be told that his tenure was literally going to be five days and he needed to have another job within that five day period. And oh, by the way, I placed a call to John Dunlop, the secretary of labor, and he has a job open that fits your background in your law firm and if you want to interview for that job, you should be over there at four o'clock today. Uh, he called me having just met me. He said, uh, if I get this job, then I, I need some people to go with me. Are you willing to go to the Department of Labor to work on this new law called the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, which had just mm -hmm. been signed into recently signed into law by President Ford? And I said, I'm interested in public finance. Public finance surrounds pensions. I'm interested in finance issues and all of those issues. So that actually fits its public administration. It's a lot of financial issues in the pension system, uh, not to speak of a few assets. And so sure, let me know. And he called me at home at seven o'clock that night and said, we're supposed to be at the Department of Labor tomorrow morning. Uh, to be sworn in to start work tomorrow at the Labor Department. And so the wow. next day, the next day I was um, in the ERISA business and the retirement business. 
And my first main assignment there was to design and create and, and end quotes, establish an office of pension policy and research. And um, that is what I did and served as the acting uh, deputy assistant secretary for policy and research um, for two years uh, before a change of administration led to another set of staff changes. And even though I was a career employee, um, I had annoyed some, um, some people uh, who liked to bid on Department of Labor contracts, including pension research contracts for which I had responsibility. Um, and they filed a complaint against me, which led to the uh, new assistant secretary saying, I have a great new job opportunity for you. Um, and he said, there's no justification for me to ask you to leave, but if you're willing to go to work at the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation where they have a special need right now, um, why don't you go do that? And I knew the then head of the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation um, from my work during the years at labor because that was a unit of the Department of Labor. Um, and I went to the over there and ended up with my main job over there being implementing a congressional mandate, um, conducting a comprehensive study of the U.S. multi-employer pension plan system and Ooh. developing a legislative reform proposal for a design of that program, which had left been pretty well left blank in ERISA with the guide that the agency is supposed to create this thing um, and completed that study and it was transmitted to Congress in July of 1978. Um, at that point, my then boss, uh, a PhD statistician and economist educated at MIT, um, told me he was accepting a private sector job, um, that he'd be gone soon and that I should, I, I should decide if I wanted to stay at PBGC in my career position or look at something else. And a few weeks later, he called me and said, I've got this group that is interested in creating um, an entity, uh, but they can only create it if they have somebody to establish it and build it. And they asked me if I was interested. I said, no, they said, can you recommend anybody? Um, that kind mentor recommended me to them. Um, I was set up to talk to them a couple of weeks later uh, when I received a phone call from a guy that had been in high school with my mother and father who I'd known since I was a wee babe because one of he was at the reception following my baptism. And so he held me on my baptismal day. Uh, he at that moment happened to be um, the chairman of the Senate Human, the Senate Environmental and Public Works Committee a guy named Henry Jackson, a senator from the state of Washington. Um, they were doing a markup that day of the Alaska lands bill. And so I went, was allowed by the guards into the closed session. Uh, Scoop looked over and waved me to come behind the rostrum. He swiveled in his chair and asked his compatriot to chair the meeting for a few minutes. 
And he said, I've got a problem. You're the only person I know in the world who seems interested in pensions. And I said, well, it is true that I am interested in pensions. I said, what's the issue? Said, well, a friend of mine who is the chairman of Xerox Corporation, Peter McCullough, has just been, just been asked by President Carter to become chairman of the President's Commission on Pension Policy. And he called me and said he didn't know anybody that was interested in pensions, did, did I, um, that could be the executive director. And so I then went and interviewed with McCullough to be the executive director of the Pension Commission, along with one other candidate um, who at that point, ironically, was um, my successor as head of the Office of Policy and Research in the pension program at the Labor Department. Uh, was a PhD economist. He had finished his dissertation and had been an economist with the United Mine Workers and the AFL-CIO. So he, he had union creds, uh, which my membership in the retail clerks union in Seattle, Washington, when I was selling shoes at Nordstrom, um, was not deemed to be equal creds to having worked uh, <laughs> in the economics department of labor unions, even though I had my union card. Uh, and that actually, ironically, the fact that I was one of two candidates for the president's commission job made the people who were putting together the Employee Benefit Research Institute even more interested in me because it was the president's announcement a year prior that he was creating the commission that it actually caused them to decide to create the Employee Benefit Research Institute. Uh, and on September 28th, um, just before either of my interviews, they incorporated, it was incorporated and approved by the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, so the day after I was, I was called by Scoop again, um, Scoop calls me and says, McCullough's out of the country, so he asked me to call you. I'm sorry to be the one calling you to give you the bad news, having gotten you involved in this in the first place but he's been told by the White House, you're unacceptable and he has to hire the union guy. And he said, now, of course, I'm a union guy, so I can't complain about that, uh, but I am sorry. And if I hear of another job, I'll, give, I'll get in touch. Uh, and I said, well, I think I have one, but I'll let you know. Uh, and two days later, I had my final interview with a group in New York for creation of the Employee Benefit Research Institute, um, was offered the job, accepted the job, subject to full-time beginning on December 4th. Um, and with, will you please use your remaining vacation time at the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation to find an office, interview some initial staff, set up a bank account, We've committed $325,000 a year for each of the next three years. We're only committing to support it for the next three years because we're only committing to support it during the life of the President's Commission on Pension Policy. And it has various and sundry purposes, but frankly, the real reason we created is because in the 1960s, when Kennedy had that commission, a whole bunch of our firms agreed to do research. And all of us ended up agreeing to do the same identical studies because none of us were told the other people were doing it. And we didn't get a paid a dime to do any of them. 
And we all thought it would be good for our business name recognition that we were the only ones that would do this study for the commission. And we ended up thinking we were fools. So we're gonna create a think tank this time, a research organization. We're gonna tell the commission, they will do whatever studies you need done. And so our first 19 months was largely spent doing data collection and data analysis and documents and briefing documents and presentations to the President's Commission on Pension Policy. Um, and subsequent to that, they decided to continue their funding, plus we expanded the base of support. Um, and I spent the rest of the next 37 years as the chief <laughs> staff executive of the Employee Benefit Research Institute. And by the time I got to the point, because they didn't care if I had a PhD and they didn't care if I wrote a dissertation as long as if I did it, it didn't interfere with what I was supposed to be doing for them. So by the way, wait till year four. And to be blunt by year four, when I went back to the Maxwell School, uh, the Dean had changed, the department chair had changed, a bunch of the professors had changed. And they literally said to me, we're not interested, thank you very much. Um, you're an ABD, you'll be an ABD forever unless you go to another school, congratulations and thank you. Don't, don't bother us. Um, and so I did not ever complete my PhD. Uh, it seems the statute, the statute of limitations. Yeah, I guess so. It never, it never seemed. Yeah, they, I, they didn't even offer to let me retake the comprehensive exams, and if I passed those, to, to think about it. But hey, you know, I've not suffered from it. Uh, it saved me a whole lot of time and suffering and pain to not have to write it. So that ends up being a good news story. And then I did spend. But you wrote you. Go ahead. Yeah, he wrote the. No, I mean, you wrote many other things. Yeah, so. exactly. Oh, I, um, I cope. I, I have there. My name is somewhere on. It's something like thirty-five books, and uh, more articles and testimonies and papers than I can count. Right. Uh, not that I, but I just haven't. Uh, but I do based on the advice of uh, my old professor from the University of Washington, uh, who moved from there to set up the Business Government Society program at Brigham Young University a couple of years later. Um, he said, you always must maintain a legitimate curriculum vita uh, that lists everything you've ever done. And so I do, I do in fact have one of those. I, I have had not much use for it, but, it, uh, but it is there. And then I so, left um, time and at the end of 2017, after two years as a resident fellow, and ended my my gainful paid employment career. So uh, um, yeah. the the ideas and lives deals with, and and I'm sure our uh, listeners and viewers uh, will find fascinating uh, the evolution of your career. <laughs> but in the last, uh, say, 10 minutes, <clears throat> I'd like to see where, hear where you see pension policy today, where you see it going, what <clears throat> recommendations you might have, and whether any of those recommendations have a chance to 
materialize. Yeah, ironically, when I when I went to the Labor Department in 74, at the beginning of the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, uh, the, the principal objectives of both the creation of that program at the Department of Labor and of the Plan Termination Insurance Program was to assure the future growth and expansion of defined benefit, annuity only paying defined benefit pension plans. Um, and ironically, that law um, was in fact the, de the death knell and the guarantee that none of those objectives would be met. Um, and that is because immediately upon passage of ERISA, um, the Accounting Standards Board immediately said, well, good gosh, these are now real liabilities. And that began a movement towards uh, balance sheet recognition of liabilities that had never been recognized before. Um, some years later, just the discussion by the Accounting Standards Board, and then frankly, the reality of the Accounting Standards Board requiring similar accounting treatment for retiree medical liabilities but in the absence of an ERISA provision related to retiree medical, and in the absence of any pre-tax funding availability for retiree medical, what that ended up the accountants did to pensions as a result of ERISA, and they based the accounting standard for retiree medical, and they said it was really because of ERISA and the pension standard that they were doing it, even though it was not legally required. So and we're that, talking about the law of unintended consequences. Right. And that led to the death of defined benefit retiree medical programs in general across the U.S. economy. They then extended that to the public sector. And so you've seen dramatic erosion of those benefits in the public sector. You've also seen dramatic erosion in the public sector of traditional defined benefit annuity only plans. And all of that led fairly quickly, 1978, a very short period of time by pension legislative standards. And in 1978, when the Revenue Act was passed, it basically, where ERISA defined the end of a system, the Revenue Act of 1978 defined the future of the system that, and is still the true predictor of where health and retirement and literally all benefits have gone, largely since 1980-81 when the, when the Treasury Department put out the regulations implementing the Revenue Act of 1978. That was the creation of Section 125 of the code, which put full credence on so-called salary reduction flexible benefit programs where benefits were co-paid on a pre-tax basis by both the worker and the employer. Secondly, by the creation in the Internal Revenue Code of Section 401k, which with the then the subsequent regulations led to the creation of 401k plans, which then reinforced by decisions in the Revenue Act of 1986 
pretty much assured that 401k plans would be the future of any employment-based retirement system. And the actions taken on individual retirement accounts really put into final form in the Revenue Act of, 78, of, of 86, and then reinforced with the creation of the Roth IRA some, some years later for an after-tax treatment, never-tax distribution IRA. That then moved to the 401k, so you now had a broader panoply of options available. Uh, and, and thirdly, a set of additional funding changes in 1978 and 1986, then augmented in 1993 by the Budget and Reconciliation Act. All of those things took defined benefit plans of a traditional nature from something that was already withering on the divine to something that was definitely going to be a thing of the past. And that was marked in 1984 when a new type of defined benefit plan, an individual cash balance retirement plan was put into place. And in that same time frame of 1986, health savings accounts and medical savings accounts were created to companion with high deductible health plans. Then we move forward again to the Obama administration and the Affordable Care Act and the Affordable Care Act, the primary type of health plan that has been built up and selected by those using the Affordable Care Act are in fact health savings accounts based high deductible Ooh. health plans because they are the lowest cost plan. And what individuals getting those plant getting plans through the Affordable Care Act, even with the subsidies, the choice has been for those types of programs. And in many settings now with employers, they for decades now have been the only available option that employers give their employees is choose between these three high deductible health plans, choose whether you want a health savings account or not. So as we've seen this movement since ERISA, and if you then carry it to the Biden Build Back Better proposal, the current proposal being pat being considered in the House, meaning that has been through the House Ways and Means Committee on tax provisions, is it would it would further create a movement which is a mandatory offering by any employer in the United States with more than five workers of either an individual retirement account or a 401k plan on an automatic enrollment employee opt-out basis with initial employee contributions at 6% out of pay escalating to, I believe it's 12% and without any required employer contributions. So you suddenly in this, if this bill goes through, you will not only have created a mandate of a variety which was recommended by the president's commission on pension policy in 1981, but never even got into to legislation because of the election of President Reagan and no subsequent administration, Democratic or Republican ever proposed it. It's taken until now for that proposal to actually look like it might become law. So if you add together the private actions driven by the accountants, driven by these laws, driven by all of which to your point are unintended consequences almost universally 
On top of that, the structure and what is followed the Affordable Care Act, again, employers then mimic what the, those government authorized programs offer. And now with the mandatory defined contribution, you end up with even fewer incentives essentially for an employer to offer these programs on a voluntary basis with additional employer dollars um, unless negotiated or unless in a tight labor market, they decide it's absolutely needed to attract and retain workers as opposed to anything else. But with these movements towards cash balance plans and primarily single sum distributions, 401k plans primarily with single sum distributions, IRAs primarily with single sum distributions. Wait, can you define single sum distribution? What that? When I leave, when I leave my job, I ask for all the money and I get one check, and I can <clears> either <throat> take that check and pay immediate income taxes on it, or I can take the check, roll it into a Roth IRA and pay income taxes on it, or I can choose to roll it over to a traditional IRA and pay no income taxes on it until I take the benefits. Right. Right. And those are the three options of single sum distributions. Um, Data, data that is still out there, the most recent survey data I found, for example, on defined benefit plans is even in those plans that spend a tremendous amount of money seeking to encourage people at retirement to take a life income annuity, those take up rates, depending on the sector, range from 22% to 35%. If you look at the cash balance programs, the percentages are closer to 19%. If you look at 401k plans and other defined contribution arrangements, it's even lower than the 19%. Uh, even with legislative changes now urging, including in the federal employee thrift plan, but, and I did drop that out of part of the reason for the way the world is looking now and will look in the future, in 1987, the United States Congress downsized for future workers the defined benefit pension plan, the traditional pension plan, and introduced a very generous 401k type plan, the federal employee thrift plan. Right. They've continued liberalizing that. It's now the largest defined contribution program in the world by far. It is what most federal workers now have surveyed view as their primary retirement plan. They do not view the defined benefit program, which is still there as their primary means of retirement savings. And given tenures of even federal workers, which have always been relatively short for the vast majority of federal workers, just as for the vast majority of private sector workers, is it makes sense that the defined contribution plan is what they would view as more important than the defined benefit plan. Plus the federal government has made retiree medical benefits at retirement far less available to a federal pensioner. So it requires longer service close to retirement in order to be eligible for retiree medical benefits. So that is another incentive away from um, people staying for long tenure with the federal government. And 
then finally you get into this federal component, the underlying theme of, of the defined benefit programs, which is the annuitization and the last holdout in the federal government that just had defined benefit uh, was the US military and did not have any ability to take cash out of that defined benefit program. Um, during the tail end of the Biden administration, excuse me, the Obama administration, the Congress passed a new law and that new law made for the first time um, the option of single sum distributions, of at least a partial balance of the military retirement defined benefit program available uh, to military individuals. And they introduced a 401k program for federal military and members of the military that included a matching contribution and incentives for participation and continued participation. <clears throat> And again, since with a 20 year cliff vesting of the defined benefit plan, the vast majority of, of military do not work, stay in the military for 20 years. And so for them, the only meaningful program is now defined contribution um, in which most financial advisors and private investment firms tell them to take a single sum distribution and roll it into an individual retirement account um, for the obvious self-interested capitalist free market reason that that gives them control of the money uh, in a more direct way than if the money stays in a, a employment-based 401k plan uh, where it is the employer who is at least selecting the management company in most cases, even if the employee has the ability to select alternative investments from other so, Dallas. Um, I'm, I'm not sure whether um, I hear you saying this as something to be very much regretted. <clears throat> oh, wait, I mean, there's, there's one other uh, development, which okay. I'm sure Dallas is aware of, and that is that uh, the insurance industry has... Uh, launched, you know, given the uh, changing demographics and the low interest rates where the mortality factor uh, becomes much more important in generating income, there is the possibility of insurance companies getting into this business at the payout stage, which means even earlier. Uh, so uh, that's my take on. I, I, I agree with that, but the, the critical issue is whether or not individuals have a desire for annuity streams. And the fact that the industry, a segment of the industry wants them to want annuities um, and is attempting to educate people to the virtues of annuities and to at least consider annuities, I view as a highly desirable thing. It at least makes people more informed consumers. Um, but again, based on efforts at different employers over time and by different unions and different companies, at least while I was still fully active, but I continue to follow the research is 
even where there's the equivalent of, of what I'll pejoratively describe as browbeating, um, the take-up rates are still quite low. And so I see that as a, an expansion of education and expansion of options and consumer knowledge, all of which is good. But at this point, at least my judgment from looking at all the data would be that it is unlikely to have a significant impact. The final piece of that, Zvi, which you both as academics uh, make me realize that I failed to mention, but it was significant in all of this, was the individual who, who took the job I wanted as executive director of the President's Commission on Pension Policy, who was a good friend. And in the interest of full disclosure, I'll note that my wife was a professional analyst at the Department of Labor, um, who knew him well at the Department of Labor and did some projects with him. And as soon as he became executive director, he hired my wife to a senior position at the President's Commission on Pension Policy. Um, and I continued to have a lot of dealings with him, both because we were personal friends as well as um, the EBRI assistance to the President's Commission. But he was immediately hired by the Carnegie Commission on retirement to reevaluate the teacher's insurance and annuity program and its tradition of a life annuity only payout program and the failure of it to offer any alternative to life income annuities. And so the program created by the first Carnegie Commission was essentially um, dramatically changed by the second commission with the introduction of the ability for TIAF participants to remove money in cash form and to have far less of the money necessarily come out as a life income annuity stream. And the educational programs offered and the, the web-based programs and all offered by uh, the TIAF changed dramatically um, in the subsequent years. And at least based on all the data done by TIACREF researchers and outside researchers using TIACREF data, the proportion of annuitization out of TIACREF has declined dramatically uh, on an age-dependent basis, um, and in, including the fact that as a result of that change, um, many TIACREF institutions have actually moved their accounts out of TIACREF um, to other service providers. Once essentially it was a 401k type plan more purely, um, but with an annuity option, obviously the annuity piece of it. And so that definitely changed attitudes in publications, attitudes in academia, um, the types of presentations I heard at all sorts of conferences given by both academics and researchers and executives from TIACREF um, and that type of modeling and, and behavior and funding of research and orientation, uh, really, as you both know, being in that business, um, does in fact have an influence on, on long-term trends. And at this point, unless something very radical were to happen, um, the trends I've described in the future for employee benefits I've described, I don't think will, will modify. 
Uh, and to your brief comment, I would stress I am not. I'm trying to avoid um, commenting on any of it judgmentally, um, because most all of it was unintended, at least by the decision makers that made the decisions within the government. And I believe even the Carnegie Commission might not have made the decisions had they realized how radical the results might have are, are have proven to be. Um, I'm sure the accountants might not have done things exactly the way they did them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you end up with different dynamics, but the world is what the world is. Um, I, for 37 years, ran what was a non-lobbying, non-advocacy, non-conclusion, non-partisan research institute. Uh, one of my job requirements upon hiring was to become a registered independent and to never again participate in a political campaign. Um, and there was an exception unless one particular individual who I'd worked with on reapportionment, um, and they actually said two, but that I never thought the second would run for the United States Senate. Both of them subsequently did run for the United States Senate, the Attorney General and the government. Both of them were subsequently elected to the United States Senate. Um, and I confess to having worked on both of their campaigns um, with a particular emphasis on retirement income and health policy. But um, I can guarantee you that um, they're having been in the United States Senate along with what ended up being five members of the state legislature who became congressmen from the state of Washington. Um, one of them who became the senior pension person on the House Ways and Means Committee for a decade um, is I didn't campaign for them, but I knew them all well. And I can assure you that many of them distributed to all members of the United States Congress um, a slew of employee benefit research data tables and research reports and research studies um, that did in fact play a major role in decision making in the Tax Reform Act of 1986 as, a, as in addition to the early 80s budget reconciliation measures that dealt with IRAs repeatedly and 401k plans. Um, and then following that in consideration by the, the Congress of the addition to the, of the Medicare prescription drug program, um, where a study we did directly contradicted a, the results of the presentation to Congress by the Congressional Budget Office, because we thought their assumptions on what employers were due were wrong and were not data-based. We did surveys, we thought our numbers were better um, as the then chairman of the finance committee, uh, still in the United States Senate, uh, said to me as we finished a briefing to the combined group of conference people on that, that, that measure, um, that it was our data presentation that caused them to decide to reject the CBO analysis and to have it rerun with our assumptions. And that that is what determined their final decisions on the structure of the Medicare catastrophic program. Uh, we made no recommendation one way or the other, but they thought that what employers would or would not do, as did the CBO analysts, would have an ex a, a very large impact on the ultimate cost of the prescription drug program and utilization rates under the prescription drug program. Um, 
but but the, the swing in outcomes projected based on the difference in assumption of employer behavior. And I'm pleased to say that I review along with some of my former research staff, um, what has actually happened to the Medicare prescription drug program and employment-based sponsorship of prescription drugs. And I can report looking backwards that our assumptions were correct and the CBO assumptions were not. And well, both, yeah. of us, both of us doing objective research. Well, this is a very, this has been a very interesting uh, interview and episode. Um, I have to say, I'm, I'm a bit sorry that you didn't go into politics. <laughs> we need the kind of honesty and clarity and- uh, And what a memory. Economics and finance background. You remember actual dates when things happened. <laughs> that, well, I can tell you, had. I must tell you that, that uh, one of the, the better outcomes of the fact that I did not ever break my promise and try to run for political office or go into politics um, is that my wife and I are still living under one roof and are still happily married and have been together since 1974. So um, I view that as I haven't met my parents' my parents' expectations set for me, which is when my father finally passed away at 94. I say finally only because he didn't think he'd last that long. Um, it was three months short of their 70th wedding anniversary. And so I've got a few years left to catch up with mom and dad, but uh, I'm hoping that my wife will go yeah. along with that. And so I assure you that I will not decide even at this point to go into politics. To go into politics. Well, you're working, what, what is your latest assignment? Something for the city after, of- uh, after, I, after I left Avery, um, my wife and I, and my wife is, um, she's at home COVID, but she'd been in an assisted living facility due to Lyme disabilities for 11 years. And, um, so we ended up not thinking that the DC regulations and laws were sufficiently resident protective um, since they had literally been written um, after the Older Americans Act by the, the long-term care industry. And so we took on a personal project of hiring a law firm and having a reform bill drafted. Um, I did go into politics and lobbying enough to get all 13 members of the DC Council to co-introduce that legislation and co-sponsor it. Um, that was enough to make the Department of Health decide that a regulation they hadn't gotten around to writing since 1971, um, it might be a good idea to start the project. And the city council said, if you finish it in a reasonable amount of time, we won't pass this legislation. And uh, through the process that uh, regulation was drafted, it included 60% of the provisions that we thought were important out of the legislation. Uh, that was good enough for us and good enough for the city council. And that regulation went into final full effect with all of its resident protections on April 1, 2021. And um, as a result oh. of those, those exercises and activities, uh, to your point, my, my upcoming assignment, uh, which is a nonpartisan one, 
is the mayor of the District of Columbia has submitted to the city council uh, my appointment to the Board of Long-Term Care Administration, which is the oversight and regulatory board for nursing homes, skilled nursing facilities, assisted living facilities, and um, integrated facilities that go from independent living through memory care. Um, and the city council is scheduled to vote on that uh, in mid-October. And my first meeting uh, as a member of that board is scheduled for mid-October. So I now get to oversee some of the implementation of the regulation. And my position on it is, is the um, representative of residents and families of long-term care facilities. So it should be fun. Give me something to do. But it's also an unpaid position. Well, when Washington, D.C. becomes a state, maybe you'll be the first governor. How's that? <laughs> no chance. No chance. Um, I value my wife above position. Hey. Well, Dallas, uh, we want to thank you so much for this interview and episode that uh, has revealed so much about uh, the world, the world of getting into public policy, the world of continuing it. Um, maybe we'll have a subsequent interview to go through pension policy in more detail, uh, but you've given us an enormous uh, amount of interesting material for our listeners and viewers uh, to experience. By the way, Ibri is not just pensions, it's also health policy. Absolutely. It's, all, it, it's the full range of benefits. But thank right. you. Both. Thank you both for the opportunity. I, I the opportunity to talk largely about biography and history. Um, but I, I would welcome more substantive conversations in the future about retirement subjects, health subjects, flexible benefits, Social Security, Medicare, um, all those things that I came to know and love. Uh, in great detail over over my career. Maybe we'll give you a uh, an honorary PhD. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> well, Svi, you always close it out with uh, our. Oh yeah, comments. we say our our last uh, goodbye is Zai Gesund. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Dallas. Thank you both. Good to see you both. Right. Great, okay. great to see you. Bye bye. Bye.